This is The Guardian. Hello and welcome to the Guardian Football Weekly. Is Pep underthinking this Manchester City hammer Bayern 3-0 and barring something odd in Munich next week, we'll play Real Madrid or Chelsea in the semi-finals. Some superb performances from City. John Stones, wherever he's meant to be. Ruben Diaz, Bernardo and another goal and another record for Erling Braut Haaland. Meanwhile, Thomas Tuchel might have got it right for 70 minutes until Upamakar, oh no... What are you doing? After that, Bayern crumbled on the other side of the draw into surprise 2-0 win at Benfica. Means it looks very much like there'll be an Italian side in the final. Also today, can Dean Smith do his best Nigel Pearson impression at Leicester? Ben Foster, you couldn't script it in the National League. And the Lionesses trip up against the Matildas. All that plus your questions. And that's today's Guardian Football Weekly. Glenn says, if the pod had Manchester City's millions, Glenn Denning, Eau Claire and Rin Tut is the international lineup they would splash the cash on. Philippe, don't know if you would accept that contract. Welcome. <laughs> Thank you very much, Max. Um, uh, what's the salary? Ah, uh, oh, 25 million a year for you. All right. Don't. You can't say it. You can't. You can't. You're the moral compass. Yeah, but then, but then, I'd, but then I'll say exactly what I want. And then I'll get sacked oh, and I'll get a big Mourinho Conte kind of payoff and I'll carry on saying horrible things. Great. Trousering the money. Barry Glendening, welcome. <laughs> Howdy. And uh, that laugh you heard is that of Archie Rin Tut, one of the two most popular laughs on the podcast, I believe. Welcome, Archie. Thank you. Who, who's that alongside? I think. And that's, you know, I mention it because people sometimes tweet and say, oh, can you get Archie and can't remember who the other person is. <laughs> it's got to be Nicky, is it? Yeah, it might be Nicky. I think it's Nicky, yeah. Let's get a Nicky Archie. Or maybe Robin Cowan, says producer Joel. Very popular laugh. There we go. Anyway, um, Ethan says, is it really a post-Champions League quarterfinal pod with Philippe and Barry on if PSG haven't been knocked out for our entertainment? I'm afraid that's already happened. So we will discuss City beating Bayern. Uh, Mark says... Brackets, insert any Man City player, close brackets, was good. Wasn't he, Barry? It was an imperious performance all over the team. Yeah, uh, it's difficult to think of anyone who didn't have a really good game. And I think it's worrying for the rest of Europe. If I mean, I didn't think Bayern Munich were as good as Thomas Tuchel claimed after the game, nor did I think they were as bad as the scoreline and the number of missed chances by City suggest. But they are one of the best teams in Europe. They didn't play dreadfully and they still got absolutely hammered. Um, They had their chances and they did cause City a few problems. But um, we had the Rodri wonder goal with his weak foot and the Deo Opamecano masterclass didn't help Byron's cause, and he he was directly responsible for giving away the second goal, and that was pretty much that, I think, afterwards. But City, that's their ninth win in a row, I think, in all competitions. Uh, They've won by an aggregate score of 30-something, three or four, those games. And... uh, yeah, they, they, they've they really hit their stride at the right time this season. Mm. And Philippe, I mean, I don't know who, I, like Barry said, I don't know who to pick out from that City performance. Because he's right, actually, for 70 minutes, it was close. And Bayern, start of that second half, were really good. And, and you know, if, if all you're doing is limiting it to a Rodri and his left foot from 25 yards, you think, oh, we've done okay here. But there is a relentlessness to that City side when they're playing like that. That means even the best teams kind of get done in the end. Is it this relentlessness, by the way, which is uh, the reason uh, behind the liquefaction of uh, poor Upamecano, who is a superb central defender, and who can be inconsistent, but had a few minutes to forget a bit, you know, I, I was trying to think, actually, we should, we should try and think like players who suddenly have these moments in big games and who are really good players and will be really good anyway. But they have those moments when, oh, my God, uh, it's like I'm swimming and I've got cramp and there's absolutely no way I can, I can go back to the surface. And uh, anyway, we can come back to that, that later. But Well, it's like, no, it, I mean, it's interesting. It's like the yips, isn't it? It is, it's, it's Jean van der Velt or Ian Baker Finch or... or um, 
you know, some darts player who can't let go of the dart. And and uh, what uh, tennis players call le petit bras in French, uh, the small arm, is that suddenly, for some reason, you're not able to pro- you know to to hit the ball with the same the same strength, and you're losing control. You you don't have an explanation for it. But anyway, but it's true that until then, I thought Bayern were actually at times absolutely terrific. But that personal opinion. One player I would I would single out I think for Manchester City because all the others have already been named uh, is Akanji, and um, because I don't think that when Manchester City bought him um, to start with I think most people were thinking do they really need another centre back they've got Laporte they've got Stones they've got Diaz they've got Rodri who can play there they've got all these centre backs and then they bring this guy and were you expecting him to see, to see him? now being a regular starter in the new improved pep i'm not changing my team kind of mold uh, and he is on one hand I, i'm i'm being the devil's advocate in saying like bayern were in it until upamecano's meltdown and i think they were but on the other hand uh afterwards what you saw uh that relentlessness and i think there's one thing in um, the, the second goal which will have pleased pep guardiola no end it is a superb goal but it's three of his players doing things that they're not known to be good at. It's like Jack Grealish gets the ball from Upamecano by pressing. To be honest, Jack Grealish was never known to be the super presser. He's become one, but he wins the ball. He passes it on to a striker who is renowned for hitting the ball like a mule, but who delivers an absolutely exquisite assist at the far post, that's Holland, for the head of a man who is about four foot one, Bernardo Silva, who is, it would plant an absolute beauty in the corner of the net. So you've got a guy who can't press, who passes to a guy who can't pass, who passes it to a guy, a guy who can't head, and it's, a, <laughs> and it's a goal. So that's, in, that's Pep Guardiola's dream. I think this is like, ah, how can it get any better? Um, John says, is it okay to take a hiding in the Champions League as long as your manager doesn't arrive at work on a skateboard? Michael, in hindsight, would Roy Hodgson have been a better fit <laughs> at Bayern Munich? And Seamus says, if Bayern lose the second leg, they'll have lost as many games under Tuchel as under Nagelsmann this season. What was all that about? Um, h- how do you view it from a, a Bayern Munich perspective, Archie? I want to build on two things Philippe said. One, the fact that Akanji played ahead of Walker was one of the big decisions that Pep would have been hounded for had it gone wrong. So fair play to him on that. Upa Meccano, as Philippe says, has been one of Bayern's best players this season. Apart from games against Borussia Mönchengladbach, but Bayern have an allergic reaction to Borussia Mönchengladbach. That's that's well known in, in Germany. The thing is, I would present another theory as to why he didn't play well, which is he's been in a great flow and one of the players who has been working the best under Julian Nagelsmann and then you take him away from him and those ideas and one person who was able to embody those and you could read that as 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 you put it kind of clumsy the what what he was doing last night there were more than just those moments before the second goal you could also read it as confusion and wait what am I doing here now I'm not quite sure so I sympathise with him a little bit on that. I think that on the whole, this was a Bayern team which displayed the same problems that I've seen since Tuchel came in and the same problems that I've seen when Julian Nagsman was there, which is they lack a number nine. And even more so when Eric Maxim Choupo-Moting was injured last night, Serge Nabry isn't it. Um, he's also not Robert Lewandowski is, is Choupo-Moting. And the balance of this team is just kind of wrong. It reminds you of the German national team right now. Joshua Kimmich still wants too much as a number six, as a defensive midfielder. He's out of form. But also you look at there's n- numerous players in that team. Alfonso Davies isn't quite what he was, for example. Serge Nabry is... I, I don't know what's happened to him. Ever since he signed the New Deal, not the first time that's happened with a player. But as you alluded to as well, the fact that Thomas Tuchel is already having to justify himself in his post-match interview and say, oh, I, I, I thought we were really good tonight. I saw a very shifty Thomas Tuchel in his post-match TV interview, how defensive he was and how he said, today I shockingly fell in love with my team. We deserved a result. 
even if it sounds stupid, we deserved a result. I'm like, you've been at the club for two weeks and you're justifying your position. Bayern are in a pickle. Haaland, Barry, his 45th goal for City this season um, in just his 39th game. I mean, you already, you already know what the question might be. Uh, <laughs> Van Nistelrooy hit 44 for Manchester United in 2002-03. Salah for Liverpool in 2017-18. Last English top flight player to score more in a season was Clive Allen for Spurs in 86-87 when he got 49. Dixie Dean, 60. Top flight goal, 63 in all competitions for Everton, 27-28. And Messi got 73 in all competitions for Barca in 2011-12. So where's he, where's he ending up? In between Dean and Messi, do you think, this season? Um, I think if he stays fit, he could emulate or even better Dixie Dean. 15 goals in the remaining fixtures. It's not out of the question, is it? You know, and I, I think he's obviously a, a huge factor in Deo Pamecano having a bit of a shocker <laughs> because if you're having a bad game and you're up against Erling Haaland, it's it's really not going to... Things aren't going to improve, are they? They're remarkable numbers and he gives, you know, as, as Philippe pointed out, he provided that assist. He gives them so many options because if they're having on the rare occasions they might have trouble playing through an opposition team and they didn't really have trouble doing that last night uh they can just lump it long get it launched to the big lad so without him they're still capable of playing absolutely scintillating football as we saw in their recent game against uh was it liverpool when he was in the stand so uh yeah he's, he's just part of signing you put Haaland in the Bayern side, Bayern wins or has a chance to win, okay? But you take Haaland out of the Manchester City side, they still have a chance to win. It's, that's the difference. I mean, I basically, I'm, I'm saying what Archie was saying before is that there is no number nine. And obviously he is, he's actually, he's, he's a very strange number nine. He's, uh, he's unlike anything else I've, I've ever seen, I think. This is what we say every time we talk about him. He's unlike anything I've ever seen. He's been conceived in the CGI department of Marvel Comics franchise or something like that. <laughs> They've got Leicester this weekend. It's producer Joel Wright, so Harlan could break Dixie Dean's record by, by full time. It should be added that by, it's come out this week that Bayern offered him 35 million euros a year this time last year, albeit... It was it was not made out that Bayern had tried to sign him because at that point it would be embarrassing for Bayern to have tried and, and failed against a Man City in the transfer market. I'm, I'm assuming that's why it didn't come out. Um, albeit um, my colleague Jan Argafjortoft was was very hot on that trail. Um, but yeah, they 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 very badly wanted him last season, but City offered more. So who did they go for? I mean, I mean, Harry Kane is possible. Osserman is possible. I'm just thinking of number nines that Bayern could get. Next season, Osimhen seems the the stronger link than Harry Kane. I can't see Harry Kane wanting to move away from the Premier League when he's that close to the the all time goals record, at least. And there was a reliable report from Sky that Osimhen would want to come. Question is, are Bayern going to break the hundred million euro barrier, which they've not done yet? Jake says, is there a more likely setup for Guardiola overthinking than 3-0 up in a Champions League knockout tie heading into the away leg one week before playing their title rivals? Um, I'm contractually obliged, Barry, to say they're going to need a worse night in Munich than you've had, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, I don't think they'll shit themselves in spectacular fashion. But um, yeah, you never know. No, I mean... Th th I would be absolutely astonished if Bayern Munich can turn this around. I didn't want an answer. I just wanted to ask the question. Andy says, why is it why, why is it left to German fans to protest awful owners? Uh, Miguel Delaney tweeting that Bayern fans uh, put out a banner calling for the Glazers, Sheikh Mansour and autocrats to get out of the game. Football belongs to the people. Uh, the stadium responded by singing Mansour's name. It is interesting, Archie, that, that, that German fans are more politicised than English fans. Yeah, I, I see it every week. They at every Bundesliga game I go to, the ultras always will have a banner to criticize. For example, the the, the one I see most often is uh, abolish video video referees, ab abolish VAR, or just criticizing the the way that their clubs are being run. Bayern have a long history of 
um, going against uh, the, the Bion Ultras of being vocally against the Qatar Airways sponsorship. I can refer you back to Saturday. I went to Borussia Dortmund and they uh, had a protest as, as they did across the Bundesliga against the idea of uh, having investment from uh, outside shareholders being money being pumped into the league on the idea that it might make them more competitive. And I, I go up to my seat in the press box and there's like a pamphlet of information for journalists on what the protest's about. I walk into the ground, there's a, there's a pamphlet being given to me. And also, I think it's just the way that there's no... Tri- that on the important issues, there's no tribalism in Germany. At the Bayern-Dortmund game last week, I... Both both sets of fans, like you know, they were shouting things at each other. But like, there, there comes a certain minute in the game where they join together and start vocally shouting their protest against the Bundesliga, uh, against this possible investment. And that is one of the things that English football is lacking. Instead, there's too much me me meism. Whether it's about yeah, we take more away fans than you. Your club shit. Blah blah blah. And it's like what. Well, this is the precise reason why you can't have nice things. Perhaps less importantly, um, it was quite wet, wasn't it? As Barney wrote, at, at kickoff, the Manchester skies continued to dump vast, annihilating sheets of rain, rain that seemed to fall in clumps at one point to be falling upwards as well as down. Alan says, why don't football managers wear wellies? Looking at Tuchel's runners, you know they're going to be sopping wet 20 minutes in. I can't understand it. It seems to me the most innovative and fashion-forward manager in football was Egil Olsen. Exactly. I mean, I... Yes, Philippe. No, I was going to say, I was going to say, Egil Olsen, come on. The, the, the greatest wellies in the history of football. But it, uh, he, he, wore, he wore them even when it was dry. <laughs> They're very practical, aren't they? Yeah. Is Steve, like, do you think cause Steve McLaren ruined the brolly? Like, had he won that game? Was it against Croatia? Do you think then like, managers would still be able to have umbrellas? Um, but yeah, it's awfully getting awfully wet and not, not allowed to show that you're getting annoyed <laughs> that you're getting wet as well. It's a sort of ridiculous machismo part of football. I, I just uh, wanted to, um, uh, to bounce on, on, on what Archie was saying about the, the, the behavior of the fans in the stands. I mean, the fact that the Manchester City fans responded by that by singing the name of a, a senior, very senior politician and member of the royal family uh, in the UAE's well, well, anyway, what can you say that hasn't been said? But that it does happen that English fans do things of that kind. But it's it's true that it tends to be when it's their own club uh, which is concerned. Like w- if we see what the action that the West Brom uh, fans are doing at the moment, which I think is absolutely exemplary. And what is interesting is that some of the West Brom fans are also thinking about what is happening elsewhere in the league and drawing parallels what's happening in other clubs. So maybe sometimes things can work like that. Also, the, the, you know, we should forget that the reaction to the Super League was pro- primarily in, in England and that the biggest demonstrations were actually Manchester United and, and Liverpool and that they did play a role. So the potential is there. And, and the potential could be harnessed because we, we've got something called the FSA or FSF. I mean, I, to be honest, I can never remember what it is now. FSA. FSA, even though I'm a member. Well, there's, what, 650,000 members? There's, there's a great, you know, nucleus there which could be used for that. But we, we've got to go to that point where fans, yes, as you say, can, can agree that they uh, disagree about many things, but they agree on some very, very important points. And um, quite a lot of progress to be done there. But I think, you know, there's no reason why it shouldn't happen in England as it happens in Germany, even if the fans do not own uh, part of the shareholding of their clubs. Now, Nicky's on tomorrow, so we'll spend a bit more time talking about Inter's win in Benfica as well as the, the Milan-Napoli game. But, um, Barry, a brilliant and unexpected win for Inter there. I don't think this tie is over uh, and Benfica will be really ruining Gonzalo Ramos's miss right at the end, right at the death when he... he... Uh, Onana pulled off a great save from like uh, Ramos had the ball in his feet six yards out, but uh, impressive win for Inter. Even though I do think they were helped with that penalty was just a joke. The for the handball uh, given by Mike English referee Michael Oliver. Do you think a joke in that in in that it, it shouldn't have been given? It, it hits Jao Mario's head and then his arm, or sort of at the same time. Obviously, I hate the law. Obviously, I'm watching it going. 
that shouldn't be a penalty in my world. But I'm watching it going, I'm totally unsurprised it was given. I'm unsurprised it was given and I don't I, I don't even know anymore whether it definitely is a penalty or not because I can't keep up with the handball law. But Michael Oliver may well have stuck to the letter of the law and given it, but that should not be a penalty. Um, uh, so I'm I'm not necessarily blaming Michael Oliver. But uh, yeah, I, I still give Benfica some hope of turning this around. The Alessandro Bastoni, I thought, was, was great for Inter. Just those long diagonal crosses he was sending in were, were fantastic. Uh, one led to a goal from Nicola Barella and another almost led to a goal, almost carbon copy, uh, when he sent the ball into to Denzel Dunfries. And the superbly monikered Odysseus Vlacadimos pulled off a sensational save from Dunfries. Uh, but what what a name for, for that Benfica goalkeeper. Odysseus Vlacadimos. This is the best name since Konstantin Hatsidakis, who we will get to in uh, part two. Uh, Philippe. Yes, I mean, one thing is how disappointing Benfica were, um, given how actually seductive they had been in previous months with Roger Schmidt. I mean, the kind of football they were playing was just wonderful. And to be honest, I, I had them as almost outsiders for, for this competition. And then, and I, 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 it's not that I don't know what happened. I, I'm just surprised it's happened so early. First of all, they lost against Porto in a really big game at home uh, on Friday night. Obviously, there was a major hangover factor about that, that it was a defeat that Perhaps they lost against Porto because they were already thinking about Inter, and they lost against Inter because they were still thinking about Porto. If you see what I mean, um, so <laughs> yeah, I do. Yeah. Um, so there's that. And on the other hand, and I was talking to uh, Zach Louis, who knows far more about Portuguese football uh, than I do uh, after the game, and uh, I said they, they look really tired. And he said, "Yeah, uh, Roger Schmidt is a superb manager. He's done a lot with Benfica, but there's hardly been any turnover. It's not the big squad, so the players are coming to the." moment of truth in their season, both at home and in Europe, and then suddenly they don't quite have the physical resources that they had two months ago, which is why we, you saw all these dangerous situations in, in Inter's box, and then there wasn't quite the sharpness that you would have expected from them uh, earlier. So a mixture of a hangover and physical condition and an Inter side, but Nikki will tell you all there is to know about that, which is totally unpredictable, which can be god-awful, at times, and very convincing as they were last night. Yeah, I mean, and you wonder if the same thing is happening to Napoli a little bit. They got hammered by AC Milan. Like everyone thought that was a total done deal that that game uh, tonight's game, but they got smashed four 0 in the league. So, like, what impact that has on on? Unless it's a massive hustle, then it's genius uh, on the Champions League. We'll find out tonight. We'll talk about them on tomorrow's pod as well as uh, Frank Lampard's Chelsea on their way to Real Madrid. And that'll do for part one. Part two will begin with uh, Dean Smith going to Leicester City. Welcome to part two of the Guardian Football Weekly. So Leicester have hired Dean Smith as head coach until the end of the season. He'll be joined by Craig Shakespeare and John Terry. The boys are back in town, plays. Uh, his last job was at Norwich, took over in November 2021. They finished bottom of the Premier League. He was sacked... Last December, after a difficult start to the championship season, but has had success in a relegation battle with Aston Villa, was very good at Brentford. Is this a good appointment, Barry? I have no idea. I, <laughs> on the face of it, I don't think it is. It's not meant as a criticism of Dean Smith particularly, although when he was appointed manager in Norwich, they got a bit of a bounce. They, they won their first game under him, got two draws. So, you know, Leicester will be hoping... He'll do similar there, although if if he gets a bounce against Manchester City, he'll be doing particularly well. Arsenal fans will also be hoping Leicester get a bounce under Dean Smith. But um, that season, Norwich got relegated from the Premier League. He They took six points from, I think, the final 48 available. I mean, that's really, really, really bad. And just the manner in which he was appointed seems very haphazard. I don't understand why if, and there were obvious concerns about Leicester's form going into the international break, why Brendan Rodgers wasn't dismissed then. Uh, instead, they dismissed him afterwards. Then they had caretaker manager in charge. They've, they've lost 
two games uh, when they could have had a new manager in. They seem to have just been throwing darts at pictures of various out-of-work managers and deciding who they were. The, the feeling seems to be they want Graham Potter, but Graham Potter isn't ready to go there yet. Uh, he's still, you know, taking time out after being sacked by Chelsea. Rafael Benitez was mentioned. Jesse Marsh was a, apparently almost uh, given the job, but but couldn't agree terms. And now they've gone for Dean Smith. And there are three managers that who varying styles, but there's a decent chance he might keep them up. You know, it's any three from nine basically. Although Palace look like they they're probably all going to be all right. So any three from eight just have to be one of the five and. Dean Smith could do a good job there. I don't know, but the whole appointment process seems to have been very shonky. Yeah, it's hard to know how many points you you need to stay up at this stage. But you know, three wins might do it. They've got City, of course. They've got Wolves at home, Leeds away, Everton at home, Fulham away. I mean, you could feasibly win all of those, couldn't you? Liverpool at home, Newcastle away is not great, and then although Liverpool are not as great away from home, and then West Ham at home in the last day of the season. I, I suppose it's interesting, like you mentioned, Barry, this this process. And there's so many short-term deals at the moment, you know, Lampard, Gracia, Dean Smith, Roy Hodgson. And it sort of seems, seems, Philippe, to sort of make a mockery of technical directors and directors of football and just anyone who who is sort of there for long-term planning. And, and like, surely you have a plan B for a manager just in case they get hit by a bus, let alone, you know, they're hopeless and you sack them. But the obvious uh, point in mind for that was what happened at Brighton when Graham Potter was poached by Chelsea. They already had their replacement in mind and they had a plan B. And the plan B, my goodness, or plan deserve B, if I can... Oh, nice. Phrase. Very good. And uh, if it hadn't worked with deserve B, who is a superb coach, no doubt they had another one lined up behind that. So some clubs do their job properly and other clubs don't do their job properly at all. When it comes to, to Crystal Palace, for example, and Roy Hodgson, I think it's a little bit of a different case here because Roy Hodgson has done this before on numerous occasions. And I'm not going to remind Archie what he did at Fulham. And uh, no, please do. What he, yeah. <laughs> well, I can. We 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 know we both love what he did at, at Fulham, and um, and and also what he did at Crystal Palace as well. So he's a kind of ferryman, you know, as the Italians say, the guy who will take you to the end of the season. Uh, he he can take you there. So that's. Completely comp- understandable for me to, to have that, regardless of his age. But other appointments leave you completely, uh, yeah. You, you wonder if we've gone a completely different model, which is the very opposite of the traditional English model in which the manager was the manager. And he now he's simply a head coach who can be hired and fired as regularly as head coaches are in American sports, for example, where all the big decisions are not taken by coaches, but are taken at, the, at an upper echelon but usually in American sports, people have got an idea of what they want to do next. <laughs> Here in the Premier League, you get a, you know, it's just like a courtyard full of headless chickens running in all directions. John says, uh, Jean-Kevin Augustine gets £25 million for having never played for Leeds. It's not like he was barred from playing for someone else. Suddenly that Seth Johnson deal looks like a bargain, <laughs> doesn't it? Yeah, so Leeds must play uh, Augustine £24.5 million after being found to have breached his contract, they signed him on loan from RB Leipzig in January 2020 with an obligation to buy for £18 if they won promotion to the Premier League that season, which they did. Leeds argued that they should not have to pay the transfer fee because his loan expired on the 30th of June and they went up on the 17th of July after the season was delayed by the pandemic. I I don't know the ins and outs of it. Seems a bit rotten, doesn't it? Um, uh, FIFA ruled in 2021 that Leeds should pay the full amount the club lost their appeal with the Court of Arbitration for Sport last November. Um, following that real ruling, Augustine took his own case against these to FIFA, who have found partially in his favour. I don't know how much they've got if they found fully in his favour. Um, Leeds have appealed against the decision and said the club cannot comment on an ongoing legal matter. So anyway, it's a happy day in the, in the Augustine household, I imagine, as they lie around in buckets of money. Fulham, Archie. The only team on the beach in the Premier League. Suddenly, I'm not so sure about that. <laughs> that relegation zone looked a lot further away a few weeks ago. Ah, <laughs> uh, you'll be all right. You'll be all right, won't you? You're the same points as Palace, 39, 11, 12 points clear of relegation with a game in hand over everyone but West Ham. I think you'll be all right. 
two things. I think that the Mitrovic ban of eight games looks even more unfair with every week that passes when I see how many... I didn't realise it before, but of course now it's flashed up on my timeline every week of how many players touch the referee and when it's a gang of like five of them round him and like pulling on him and I'm like, is that, isn't that worse than one guy going and pushing the referee on his arm? Like, I'd much, if, if I was in a referee's position, I wouldn't want five people around me shouting in my face. It's interesting you say that because I definitely, you know, discussed this saying, you know, he needs to get a proper ban. That was my, that was my reaction. And maybe it was because he was on his own. I mean, maybe because it was like in a, a yeah, I don't know. I mean, you might be right. I think as well, the fact is, you wouldn't have noticed this if it was Saturday 3pm. It just happened to be the big game before the international break. There was so much time to talk about it. And boy, did everybody do that. And therefore, it just kind of got ramped up to this status where I think that it it was kind of a, a misfortune in, in that sense as well. Look, there was a hidden history between Chris Kavanagh and Fulham. It doesn't matter because the referees need to be given more respect. But the thing that hurts is when you see every referee, Chris Chris Kavanagh even being touched by a Nottingham Forest player the following the following match day, doing nothing about it. No, no, I, I tend to agree with Archie on this. I'm also thinking about the incident that was absolutely uh, completely disappeared, which was Bruno Fernandes with the linesman as well. There was no, there was no reaction, and I think Mitrovic is a victim. It's a bit the eight games. I think it's totally, I don't know. Uh, yeah, it's ridiculous, absolutely ridiculous. Uh, if they had given him three games, perhaps yes, that's fine. Like a straight red card, there's no problem with that. Eight games. If it hadn't been Mitrovic, I don't think it would have been eight games. That's what I think. I think that players are victims of narratives which are spun around who they are supposed to be which is why everybody had to go at Granite Xhaka after the game uh, against Liverpool, which was ridiculous. And uh, and they're having a go because it's Mitrovic. And Mitrovic, you know, is a bit... He uh, is that kind of player. Volatile. Mm. Is that kind of player, blah, blah, blah. Um, whereas the more weaselly players don't get that that kind of treatment. I personally prefer the Mitrovic's of this, of this world to the weasels. Um, and I think that what he did was wrong that he was punished, as he should have been, but that the punishment is totally unrelated to the nature and the, the scope of the crime. There are far, far worse things happening on football, on football pitches uh, than that. You know, the fact that you can, only, you can give eight games to a guy for doing something he should never do, okay, but somebody who will break a leg with intent will not get more than three games. I mean, what's going wrong here, guys? What's going wrong? If this was question time, I'd be applauding hard right now, Philippe. Yes, thank you. <laughs> well, if, if if we're all in agreement that eight games is too punitive, what do you think of the FA calling for even more of a ban for him? Like it's it's like symbolic of the whole problem that they want to make us like a real example of somebody, but then they won't be consistent across the board when they actually need to make an impact. Like, it's such a token gesture. That's it. That's it. It's such a token gesture. But isn't that, sorry, isn't that the bigger problem? Isn't the bigger problem, not that not the Mitrovic, not that Mitrovic did it, that other people are doing it and you can't have players touching referees. You obviously can't have linesmen elbowing players as well. We'll, we'll get to that. But like, you can't have... You just, we just need to. It, there needs to be sort of a paradigm shift in how referees are treated and uh, treated, rather. And you know, without getting all rugby on it, why can't it just be the captain? Why can't there be, you know, the ten-yard rule if the if the team want the free kick to go forwards ten yards or whatever? I mean, I just think those those things seem to make some sense. You need to try them in a football match. Um, I've also heard that if you get it's slightly higher pitched on this Archie, the decision will be overturned. So, okay. like, you've got. Um- <laughs> I have to, I have to have 30 seconds telling you that Fulham have raised their season ticket prices and that I am sick to the core and having having been on the Supporters Trust board around the time when there was the Stop the Greed protest and how holier than thou 
they reacted. The same people who are there now about how how dare you call this chairman greedy? He's so generous. So generous is he that, you know, everywhere around the ground, the ticket prices are up. Some of them are doubled as well. There's, there's a three grand season ticket at Fulham. Fulham. What do you get for that? Is that a golden chair? <laughs> I don't know. Do you get do you get you get you sit next to Clint Dempsey next to you at all times? What <laughs> Zoltan Gira hands you grapes during the game. What is it? But, I, now for that I would put no. But but seriously, it's just so like coming back to the point we're making in part one about uh this whole kind of People looking after themselves. I remember some of our fans being like, well, it's only match day ticket prices. But this is this would be my my word of warning to other clubs where it's happening. Like it, it's done incrementally. It, it happens first with the match day ticket prices and then they target elsewhere. And let's not forget, Fulham, if they stay up, I'm still saying if, will have more TV money than ever before. And I hear this stupid, stupid argument of well, you know, you've got to pay for this success. Look at the, yeah, I'll say, it. look at the fucking prices of a ticket, and look at how much the TV money is. It is not even a dent on these bastards. Okay, I'm done. <laughs> Constantine Hatsidakis uh, will not be involved in any matches while the FA investigates the incident in which uh, he appeared to elbow Liverpool defender Andy Robertson. Uh, PGMOL said it will not be appointing him to fixtures of any of the competition during the investigation. Uh, meanwhile, Michael Salisbury's been dropped for the next round of Premier League fixtures. He was the VAR official who failed to give Brighton that penalty. Um, although Stuart Atwell is is going to be a VAR at the next game. Um, I presume not a Brighton game, I don't think. Um, probably right that Hatsidakis doesn't line up until this is all sorted out, Philippe? Yeah, yeah, probably. It's like uh, uh, suspended while the investigation is ongoing or something like that, which of course is something which only happens uh, when it's uh, an official like that. Um, I, I have to say that this kind of story registers very low on my my personal... Um, yeah. Yeah, because it's like we're going to spend more time talking about her, the fact that a guy reacted a bit to... Actually, didn't Robertson actually touch him? He did, yeah. By the way. Yeah, yeah. <gasps> My God, how many games is he going to get for that, for touching the linesman? And we spend, well, actually, we spend, we don't, but many people spend a lot of time saying... I mean, we did on, we did on <laughs> Monday, to be fair. But. but some people take it seriously when there are other things they should be taking seriously in football. You know, for example, what is, who owns their bloody club? The kind of gambling sponsors that their clubs have got on their shirts and all these sort of things, which, you know, we don't talk about. Well, we do talk about it, but anyway... Uh, good luck to them. I hope it's it's literally a storm in a in a teacup. That that story. Let's hope that they will shake hands and get on with the game. All right, that'll do for part two. Uh, part three will begin with uh, Wrexham's victory over Notts County. Welcome to part three of the Guardian Football Weekly. Alex says, has season two of Welcome to Wrexham jumped the shark with this goalkeeper comes out of retirement to save a penalty storyline? Wrexham beating Notts County 3-2, coming back from behind. Then Ben Foster saving this penalty uh, in the 96th minute. Didn't it say somewhere? And I I forget where. Um, So uh, somebody find it. that Twitter account. The Twitter account saying yeah, right. YouTuber Ben Foster <laughs> saves a penalty. <laughs> Absolutely great, isn't it? Oh, I mean, what a game, Barry. I mean, it, it was a real thriller. It took a while to get going. And then John Bostock fired Notts County ahead with this marvellous free kick. And I had to go, John Bostock? That John Bostock? <laughs> and it is that John Bostock. The guy it is, yeah. who, as a kid at Spurs, was tapped up by Barcelona but elected not to go never actually represented Spurs but has since had this and and has had a good career a journeyman career in various different countries but never scaled the heights to you know that were expected when he was this young kid coming through people had him down as a future England star but um yeah, so that John Bostock scores with a remarkable free kick, and I think it's his first goal in several years for Notts County. 
And then that Ben Foster saves the penalty at the end. In between, uh, Paul Mullen scores one, assists one. Obviously, former Cambridge United uh, marksman, who's who uh, Wrexham signed and have on massive money for non by non league standards. You know the Wrexham story is well documented. Uh, everyone likes Ben Foster. Everyone likes uh, Rob McElhenney and. Um, What's his name? Ryan Reynolds. Ryan Reynolds. It's usually people can't remember Rob McElhenney's name. <laughs> uh, Ryan Reynolds and the other one. Everyone likes what they're doing at Wrexham, but the Notts County story isn't as, as well known. They lost their CEO, Jason Turner, who died suddenly just a couple of weeks ago, aged only 50, and he seems to have been held in extremely high regard, not just at Notts County, but, but throughout the league. They're owned by two Danish brothers, Christopher and Alexander Reitz, who bought the club in 2019 and have invested, I think, over 12 million quid in it since then. And uh, they seem to be incredibly highly regarded at Notts County. Now, obviously, it's unfortunate that only these two clubs who go into this game on 100 points each, only one of them will get automatic promotion. I think it would be best for everyone in the the National League, if both of them go up, because uh, it seems incredibly unfair. And I, w- I would say this even if Notts County or Wrexham only had 70 points, that only one team goes up automatically. It should surely be at least three up, three down um, conference in League Two. But anyway, uh, with it, hopefully, and I think it would be better for everyone in that league, these two incredibly wealthy clubs go up and the rest of them then can have a, a better chance of going up next year. I think I agree with you. I mean, it's going to be tricky to get the EFL to vote for more teams being relegated from the EFL, which I believe how it works. But yeah, it is a nonsense that four go up and down from League One and League Two, and two go up and down from, from League Two in the conference. I mean, every team that goes up from the National League, even before these two sort of really bankrolled clubs, normally does pretty well in League Two, normally has a shout for the playoffs. And so the, 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 the gap is almost virtually non-existent between those. Uh, elsewhere in the EFL, Reading have sacked Paul Ince, their manager. They're 22nd in the championship. I know in, in eight, they had six points deducted last week for breaching the terms of a business plan set by the EFL. Noel Hunt takes over, which is great. I'm a big fan. He's a lovely man, Noel Hunt. My my only concern, and Noel Hunt is a lovely man, a brother of Stephen, but my my concern is, and I hope he does well at Reading. My concern is that, in my as as I recall, just the Hunt brothers are synonymous with relegation. <laughs> they, they seem to get relegated an awful lot during their playing careers. So is that what you who, who you really want to save your skin? I mean, I I saw on Twitter when it was Reading announced they'd parted company with Ince. Their fans seemed absolutely thrilled. Now, I, I haven't seen them play this season, but I do recall listening to the not our, our mates on the Not The Top 20 podcast at the start of the season, and they had Reading absolutely nailed on to be relegated probably by February. So they've had a points deduction. They're still in with a, a chance of survival. So I'm I'm just curious to know, did Dean do a really bad job and he seems to have a lot of injury uh, issues as well so I spoke to a couple of Reading fans thank you Will and Freddie who told me that thank you Will and Freddie indeed um, two producer types no less so you know one for real producer Joel there um, they uh, is that because because producers can only be friends with producers is that, is that, how, is that exactly. how it works not I, I mean like producer Joel's been waiting for a voice right. you know for so I many see, years and finally now he gets it through <laughs> Will and um, Freddie from Reading okay fine exactly exactly um, he was uh, tactically inept set in his ways uh, not practicing set pieces albeit was having to deal with this transfer embargo that you mentioned, which has been there since 2021. They made promises to the EFL last season uh, after they got their six-point deduction saying that we will meet certain targets. They didn't, which if I was a Peterborough fan now, given that they were relegated by four points off Reading, I'd be a little bit annoyed. 
Um, yes, only so, Peterborough, though. Actually, I won't yeah. say that before the derby <laughs> on Saturday. Wish you well. Let us have three points. Carry on. So, yeah, because they didn't shift the big earners like Lucas Zhao um, in the summer, it meant they were hit with another penalty. Um, and, yeah, they've only won twice since the World Cup break. And, yeah, uh, the football isn't isn't great either, I've I've been told. So... Noel Hunt is a very popular decision because of the work he's been doing with the academy there. Uh, but yeah, I mean, QPR look similarly threatened right now. I think it's probably between them and, and Reading, given the way that Huddersfield are going. So, yeah. Under the mighty Neil Warnock. Um, uh, yeah, look, we're, we're aware that EFL deserves time. And ever sure, obviously, people who follow their club know how they're doing. But for listeners who don't really follow it at all and want 30 seconds of here's the state of play, I've written it down. In the championship, Burnley, basically champions. Sheffield United, probably up. Luton and Middlesbrough will be in the playoffs. Then pick two from eight for the last two spots. Millwall, Blackburn, Preston, Norwich, Coventry, Sunderland, West Brom, possibly even Watford. At the bottom, looking very bleak for Wigan and Blackpool. Then it is one from Reading, Cardiff, QPR and Huddersfield. All in trouble. League one, two from three for automatic. Sheffield Wednesday, Plymouth and Ipswich. Maybe Barnsley if they do very very well. Five teams just about in contention for the other two playoff spots. Peterborough, Bolton, Derby, Wickham and maybe Portsmouth. Richard says, forget Man City stuff and Bayern or Palace becoming the deadliest attacking force in the world. Would Max agree that the greatest achievement this week was Cambridge United's 95th minute equaliser at Bolton? Bonner's great escape. Just maybe it's on. Yeah, at the bottom of League One, Forest Green looked done. Morecambe need a miracle. It's two from four. Accrington, Cambridge, Oxford and MK Dons. And in League Two, Orient looked clear at the top. Anyone down to eighth could conceivably get automatic and also challenging for the playoffs. That is in order. Northampton, Stockport, Carlisle, Stevenage, Bradford, Salford, Mansfield. At the bottom, Rochdale looked done. Then one of Crawley, Hartlepool, Harrogate and Colchester. Was that interesting and informative, Barry? Or just a long list? It was, yes. Probably worth mentioning as well, outside of the league, Scunthorpe, I think, got relegated on Monday which means they're now in the... National League North, are they? National League North. So that's back-to-back relegations for them. And I think six or seven years ago, they were knocking on the door of the championship. So it's quite quite a fall. That is. Um, uh, Elliot says, Lioness has taken down a peg tonight. Didn't look great against Brazil. Can it be good to lose or does it just invite doubt? Uh, Women's Football Weekly is out today. Faye and Susie joined by Sophie Downey and Samantha Lewis for detailed... Uh, review of that. I mean, that they had a lot of the ball yesterday against Australia. Australia's goals were both pretty... Uh, there was a bit of luck about them, but they didn't play great. Australia had lost to Scotland on Friday night. So, uh, I don't know what you think, Baz, but I think actually probably not bad for Wiegmann to, you know, that losing, that winning run to end, get a bit of a kick up the backside before the World Cup. Yeah, I, I didn't see the game, but I heard her being interviewed afterwards and she sounded very cross. <laughs> Very cross. Yeah, but look, it, it doesn't matter. They learn from it, presumably. Um, but she's done a hugely impressive job there. Yeah, brilliant job. But yes, uh, please all listen to the Guardian Women's Football Weekly because it is good. Uh, Sean says New Zealand marked 100 days to the Women's World Cup. Get a load of this debacle. And it was a great video. I mean, uh, <laughs> so, so in Dunedin, um, uh, uh, at the top of Baldwin Street in Dunedin, uh, which the mayor, Jules Radish, uh, Radich, sorry, uh, happily reported had seen up, seen off a challenge from uh, Welsh usurpers uh, to be confirmed as the steepest street in the world. They got 32 footballs, one for each country in the Women's World Cup, and released them as if they would hurtle down the street into a goal. But the street kind of pans out, becomes quite flat at the end, and most of the balls just didn't make it. And it was a very rainy day in Dunedin <laughs> and not many people unsurprisingly turned out for this spectacle and it just looked incredible I don't know I, I sort of feel a bit sad for the organisers but uh, Italy that ball almost made it to the goal and the um, uh, the World Cup mascot Tazuni sort of ran ran and got it and then claimed that Italy had won but anyway, an absolutely agonising two minutes and our sympathies to everyone involved who went along <laughs> to that. Uh, John says, uh, after Accrington replaced high with low, what other 
antonyms, substitutions could there be? Yeah, 76 minutes. Second change for the Reds, high on, low off. I mean, I got as well as Brian Little being subbed off for Eddie Large. Doesn't really work. Michael Ball coming off for Mick Shannon. And now I'm just doing com- comedy acts of the 70s, which don't quite work. You got one, Archie? Yes and no. Mainly no, but it's an interpretation of this because in 1991, yes. when Fulham were in Division 3, Alan Dix was the manager. Yes, yeah. Indeed. Uh, and the fans were fed up. They wanted him to go. So they started chanting, Dix out. And uh, the fanzine <laughs> at the time, as I've got here, they suggested that Arthur Cox from Derby came in. So so the fans began to start chanting after this fanzine, Dick's out, Cox in. And, and Arthur Cox did end up coming to Fulham as chief scout under Kevin Keegan a Marvelous. few years later. Oh, so it did happen. Good. Uh, Adam says, we're all aware of Troy's commendable tendency to be totally honest. But I've recently noticed that hardly a pod goes by without Barry saying hats off to some team or player or other. Just how many hats does Barry wear? Um, I have a feeling you didn't do it today, Barry, but maybe you did. I am wearing a hat. It's an, an Anaheim Docks baseball, well, ice right. hockey cap. Yeah, I, I wasn't aware of that. I will try to, to remove it from my... No, I mean, it's part of your lexicon, and much as Troy's, to be totally honest, is of his, and I'm sure we have, we all have our little ticks, uh, don't we? Uh, Jim says, hi, Max Oran, who I mispronounced um, the baby uh, who's listening to the pod not by choice it has to be said was delighted with the shout out thank you of course he was he was one day old listening to you and Barry uh, who will be delighted to hear that he is half awfully with his mother being a cool dairy woman cool dairy is that a place it's not cool dairy cool dairy it's a few miles outside Burr and they're massive um, hurling rivals I, I, I did inquire that there's um a set of brothers called uh, the Dooleys, uh, Johnny, Joe and Billy, who used to, they hurled for uh, Kulderi and Offaly. So I was interested to know if Oran's mother was a Dooley, but she isn't. She's not a Dooley. No. Okay. Well, it's good. It's good we iron out these sort of things. I'm sure she's still from good stock. Yeah. I mean, it does bring back to when Philippe says, look, there are some things that we really need to talk about. And we end up talking about this really getting really getting into the weeds of, of the, you know the Dooley hurling <laughs> dynasty in Kuderi it should be top of the agenda really it, just, it really means it means Infantino gets another pass anyway doesn't matter it's all we've got time for um, uh, that'll do for today thank you so much Philippe thank you very much Max thank you Archie thank you thank you Barry Hats off, Max. A Football Weekly is produced by Joel Grove. Our executive producer is Danielle Stevens. We'll be back tomorrow. This is The Guardian.